For our reading today, we're looking at 1 John chapter 5, verses uh, 13 to 15. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him of him. Good morning. Let's bow before the Lord and pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the privilege of taking up the letters of John today, and I pray that you would add now power to your word. Father, I pray that you would work among your people. I pray that you would exalt your great and holy name. I pray that you would prepare our souls to receive nine months of instruction from the Apostle John as he comes near to us through your Holy Spirit and guides us even as you used him to guide others in times past. And for what you will do, Father, we give, your, we give you our thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty and matchless and merciful name. In your glorious and great name we pray, amen. Well, today it is our privilege to begin about a nine-month journey through the letters of John. And as we do, I want to remind you that even though we went through his letters in 2010, about nine years ago, we're going through them again because we're trying to connect all of John's writings. We're trying to understand what the Lord is saying to us through his writings as a whole, as a unit. And so we've spent the last couple years working through the gospel. Today we're beginning this journey through the letters of John, and then if God gives us the grace at some point in the future, we'll work through the book of Revelation, and boy, won't that be exciting to do together. Since our aim is to see what we can discover by looking at John's writings as a whole, I want to encourage you that while we're going through the letters, to make connections between the gospel and the letters. And to help you do that, I've put a couple things together. If you look in your bulletins, there's a little green sheet, and if you'll take that out, on the one side of it, there is a a reading schedule where you could read the Gospel of John and the letters of John side by side. It would take you about 21 days to do it at a pretty mellow pace. And so I want to encourage you to think about doing that with me. I'm going to be doing that just every day, reading a chapter of, of the Gospel and a part of the letters just to help me see the connections that might be there between them. And then on the other side of the handout, I have a schedule for memorizing the letters of John over about 28 weeks. I I plan to memorize these letters at at a faster clip than that, but I want to challenge you to think about memorizing them with me. They're not that hard to memorize once you get in the, in, the, in the flow of it. If it takes you 28 weeks, great. If it takes you 38 weeks, that's fine too. It doesn't really matter. But I just want to challenge you to put the Word of God deep inside of your heart, deep inside of your mind. If you feel motivated to join me in one or, or both of these challenges, I want to ask you to share with me whatever insights the Lord gives you as you see connections between the gospel and the letters. And I want to ask you to, to share those insights with each other as well. I really have a heart for us as a people to stir one another up to love and affection for the words of God, for the will of God, for the ways of God. Some years ago, the 19th century pastor and author, J.C. Ryle, who, by the way, is one of my favorites, if you ever get a chance to read a book by him, you should definitely do it, he said this about friendship. He said, let us seek friends that will stir us up about our prayers, about our Bible reading, about our use of time, about our souls, about our salvation. If you want to know what kind of friends you ought to have, 
And maybe even more important, what kind of friends you ought to be, be that kind of friend. Be a friend that stirs people up with regard to prayer, with regard to worship, with regard to the word, with regard to the things of God. And beloved, we have a golden opportunity before us to soak within the gospel of John and the letters of John in these days and to stir one another up to love and good deeds. So let's do that. And if you don't feel motivated to join in reading or memorizing the, the letters or reading both of these things together, that's just fine. These are suggestions, not, not even in the neighborhood of requirements. But I do want to tell you that I still think God is going to speak powerfully to you as week by week by week we just seek to listen to our brother John and hear what God has to say to us through him. With that, I want to begin the series today by actually looking at the Apostle John himself. I want to trace his life from the day he met Jesus until the day he wrote his letters. And I want to do this because at a personal level, I want to help us connect with him more as a person. He was just a man, and he is our brother in Christ. And I want us to hear his story and connect with him as a leader in the church. And also, I think that the more we get to know about him, the more we'll understand why he wrote the letters and how he wrote the letters, with what kind of heart is what I mean that he wrote his letters. And in doing that, we're going to understand how this intersects with our life together at this church. The way I see it, God has seen fit to let the Apostle John come and shepherd us over the next nine months, and I'm very excited about that. As a guy who was led to Christ by the Apostle John through his writings, I'm pretty excited about that. So let me begin at the very beginning and take you back to the shores of Galilee. You may remember that John first met him there. John was a commercial fisherman by trade. And while he was working on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee one day, Jesus came by teaching and preaching the, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And when Jesus got done preaching and teaching, he did a miracle there in the sight of everybody. And that miracle was so powerful, so soul-gripping to people, that one of John's close friends, a guy named Peter, was struck to the heart and felt afraid. And he expressed his fear to Jesus. And Jesus graciously looked at him and told him, not to be afraid. And he said to him, Peter, you are going to become after this day a fisher of men and not simply a fisher of fish. And for whatever reason, that word struck not only Peter to the heart, but also John to the heart and John's brother James to the heart. And if you can imagine this, in that moment, they dropped everything they knew, they let go of everything they owned, and they began to follow Jesus day by day by day. Jesus revealed himself to these three men on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and powerfully changed their lives. The next few years were quite a wild ride. They walked with the Lord day by day. They listened to him preach and teach the gospel. They watched him exercise power over diseases and heal people right and left. They watched him exercise authority over demons and to command them to come out. And no matter what Jesus said, the demons obeyed. They watched Jesus command the wind and the waves so that they obeyed him. Even the very forces of nature were submitted to this one that they followed. And I think actually in the long term, most important of all, they watched Jesus day by day walk with his father. They watched him seek the father by prayer and through the word. They watched him and they heard him say things like, I only do what I see my father doing. That's all I'm gonna do in my life. I will not engage in anything except what the Father reveals to me. 
They watched this, beloved, and they heard Jesus say these things. Jesus said, I'm only going to say the things that the Father gave me to say. And I believe that that kind of training, day by day by day, for three to four years, powerfully impacted these men. Oh, what a time that was in their lives. When the day drew near for Jesus to be crucified, he gathered with his closest disciples in an upper room. And in that upper room, not only did he teach his disciples, but it also became clear that John had a special relationship with Jesus. He was seated right next to him. And for the first time there, he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, I've told you many times before that this does not mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples but it does mean that there was a special intimacy between John and Jesus. And I think almost beyond anything else we need to understand about John, it's that. We need to understand that we're gonna be learning from a man who had all the days of his life, his adult life at least, a special intimacy with Jesus Christ. And so we should not be surprised then that of the 12 disciples who were also apostles, he was the only one who remained faithful to Jesus when he was arrested, when he was tried, when he was convicted, and when he was sent to the cross. John was the only one who stayed with him through it all. John was the only one who witnessed the death of Jesus. And I know we talked about that just a few weeks ago, but I wanna ask you just for a moment to pause and take in this fact that John the Apostle, our teacher for the next nine months, literally sat at the feet of Jesus and watched him die. We have to read these stories and take it by faith. John saw it all. And please remember from a few weeks ago that Jesus was not lifted 20 feet up on the cross. He was right there. You could have reached up and touched his face if you got up on your tippy toes. John was right there and watched Jesus' earthly life expire. Only 36 or 40 hours later, John was one of the first ones to rush to the tomb of Jesus to investigate a report that his body was gone. And when he went into that sacred hole in the rock, and saw everything that was there and everything that was not there, mainly the body of Jesus, he himself said that he saw and believed. He put his faith in the Lord. Now, of course, John already had a relationship with Jesus, and to some extent he believed in him. But I think that John is saying that in that very tomb, he was converted I think John is telling us that in that tomb, he came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Even as the body of Jesus had passed from death to life in that place, so the soul, the spirit, the being of John passed from eternal death into eternal life right in the tomb of Jesus. Just let your mind wrap around that, beloved. This guy was converted inside the tomb. It's just amazing, totally amazing. Later that night, he gathers with the disciples and he sees Jesus bodily reveal himself to them. Eight days later, they're gathered together again in a locked room, and there Jesus reveals his glory to them again. Twice after the resurrection, John saw Jesus with his eyes. And then Jesus told them to go up to Galilee, and so with the other disciples, John obeyed the Lord, and they made their way up there. And they were waiting and waiting on the Lord to appear, and they decided to go fishing, and you remember that there Jesus showed himself to them again on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's pretty likely that that happened right in the same place where Jesus had first met them several years before. And on the shore of the sea that day, Jesus graciously spoke into the life of Peter, John's good friend, and John heard it all. And then you probably remember that Jesus graciously spoke to Peter and I think also to John about this rivalry that had 
begun to arise among them and he helped them to squash the beef, if you will. He helped them to put all that aside. And you remember that he graciously looked and he said this to Peter, but I think he was saying it to them both. And he said, listen, you put your eyes on me and you follow me. He was teaching his disciples to live with their eyes fixed on Christ. And they did that. And so just a few days later, they found themselves in the city of Jerusalem with Jesus. And there he gave them further instructions. He told them to go from Jerusalem to Samaria to Judea to the ends of the world to take the gospel. He instructed them to go up into an upper room and pray and wait upon the promise of the Father. And then there, right in their sight, Jesus bodily rose from the earth up into the presence of the Father where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God today. And beloved, I want to ask you again to just pause for a moment and let this sink in. John watched Jesus expire. John came to saving faith inside the empty tomb. John saw the risen Jesus Christ multiple times. And John watched Jesus bodily ascend to the Father. He watched this. This is the man who's going to come now and pastor us for the next nine months. He watched this happen. It's pretty amazing. Stunning, in fact. After that happened, he along with the other disciples went up into the upper room, could have been even the same upper room they were in before, and there they prayed for 10 days and waited upon the Lord. On the day of Pentecost, the Father fulfilled his promise because he is the faithful God, and he absolutely poured his spirit out upon his people, including John. John was filled with the Holy Spirit. John began to speak in languages that he did not know, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to people he did not know. John was used by Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to begin building the church so that 3,000 people were converted that day. And instantly, Peter and John rose up as a team now, not as competitors, but as a team to shepherd this church that just explosively grew in a day. Think about that. Imagine someday uh, I'm out preaching somewhere in the city and 3,000 men plus women and children come to Christ and all of a sudden they're at our church. What do you do? Good luck managing that, right? Well, praise God. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and empowered to do what was way over their heads to do. And you can read in Acts chapter 3 and Acts chapter 4 of the ministry of Peter and John side by side as they preached the gospel together, as they went to prison together, as they were released from prison together, as they suffered together and succeeded together and called upon the name of the Lord together. Beloved, Peter and John became shepherds of the church by the power of God in Jesus Christ. This is our brother. This is our teacher we're talking about here. Not long down the road, it could have been nine or ten months actually, but it wasn't all that long down the road as they're preaching and teaching in the area of Jerusalem. Herod decides that he's going to do a favor for the Jews who are still against the church, and he arrests Peter, and he arrests John's brother James. He puts Peter in prison, and then get this, you'll see this in Acts 12 too, he put John's brother James to death. So just wrap your mind around that. John and his brother James have been ministering together side by side with Jesus for all these years and now for the sake of the name he watches his very brother be put to death for the sake of the name and he watches his good friend Peter be put into prison. Peter was released from prison and the ministry continued but that is actually the last we hear about John until the first chapter of the book of Revelation and he's a very old man by that time. So from the time he was a little bit younger 
and watched the death of his brother until the time that he wrote the book of Revelation, there, just biblically speaking, is, is a gap here. But praise be to God that two people he mentored in the early church and then nine other people that followed them in the early church wrote about the life of John so that we actually have a pretty good idea of what happened to him between the day his brother was killed and the day he wrote his letters to the church. So I want to tell you that story now. But in order to help you understand that this is grounded in good historical resource, I put a slide up here with the names of the people who wrote about John. So you can feel free to take a picture of that if you'd like. That'll also be up on the website by tomorrow. But basically what I'm just trying to say is that the historical resources we have for the story I'm about to tell you are very reliable. And I feel confident that roughly speaking, this is what happened to John between the time his brother was killed and the time he wrote his letters. We need to begin, though, by saying a few words about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city. It's still actually there today. You can go see some of the ruins of the old city, and then there's actually a modern city pretty near to it. It's right across the Aegean Sea from from Greece there. It was uh, surrounded by two or 300 villages. So if you can get in your mind, it was, it was a city on the shore. In fact, I think I put a map. Yeah, you can see, it's a little hard to see on the map, but it's right there on the shore. And all around where the, the points of that star would be, just imagine two to 300 villages. So Ephesus was a city center with a web of villages around. All of those vis- villages would have seen Ephesus as a hub. It was a very diverse city. It was a very uh, a hustling and bustling type of city. It was a very important city. The gospel reached this area pretty early on in the process, but Christianity was really established there when Paul went there and spent the better part of two years preaching the gospel and shepherding the churches that were growing up in the villages all over that area. Over those two years, the Lord did some pretty astounding things. Sometime after Paul left Ephesus, he was going back through Ephesus on his way to Rome, and he met with the leaders of the church, and he encouraged them to continue their ministry of the word, but then he warned them that wolves were going to rise up from their very number to lead the church astray. He was not talking about people who would come in from the outside. He was talking about people who would rise up from the inside and cause theological doctrinal division and try to split the church. To, To help this to keep from happening, Paul actually sent one of his protégés in the ministry, Timothy, to that church to pastor it. And later, you probably remember, Paul wrote him a couple letters. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And in those letters, we see that fierce wolves did rise up. And in those letters, we see that Timothy was struggling to stand up to them. In fact, Timothy was on the verge of quitting when he received those letters, and Paul talked him out of it. Paul encouraged Timothy to stay strong in the word. He told him, preach the word in season and out of season. Timothy, do not bow to the pressure to back off of the word of God. Let the word of God be rich in the life of the church. And then he told him, correct your opponents, Timothy, with gentleness, though, in the hope that God may grant them repentance. Be gentle, but be firm, Timothy. Don't back off. And Timothy by the grace of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, did that. He stood up and he preached his heart out. And then an amazing thing happened in the mid-60s AD. You might remember in 70 AD in Jerusalem, a, a big thing happened. You remember the temple was destroyed there at that time? Well, as the tension was rising up in, in the area of Jerusalem, a number of Christians left the area and scattered throughout the world. 
When that happened, there was an influx, not only of Christians, but of leadership into the city of Ephesus. And among that group of people who landed in Ephesus was Philip the evangelist, along with his daughters. We see that in Acts chapter 21. But also, it was the apostle John. I don't know what led him to leave Jerusalem. Nobody wrote about that, but we know for pretty certain that he left the area of Jerusalem and actually ended up in Ephesus where he founded his ministry. In this way, John's ministry took root there in that place and it began to prosper and he grew up as the shepherd of the church of that area. Not only in the city center of Ephesus, but all the surrounding villages there. At some point along the way, probably 20 years or so after he began to establish his ministry there, he was arrested for preaching the gospel and taken to the city of Rome. In the city of Rome, John faced a trial in front of the actual Senate. I've stood in the Senate building in the city of Rome. It would be pretty darn intimidating to be brought in front of them and stand trial, but uh, his protege Polycarp tells us that's exactly what happened. He was brought to trial there. And you might know that John is known as the only apostle who did not die for his faith, but you might not know that he came extremely close to that. In fact, he really should have died. That day as he stood trial for preaching the gospel, the emperor Domitian himself sentenced John to death. And I don't mean to be too graphic, but what they did was they put him in a pot of boiling oil. You just think about that for a second. Have you ever been splashed by the grease in a deep fryer or something like that? That hurts. John was put in the deep fryer, in boiling oil, and miraculously, he survived. He should have died, but by the grace and power of God, he survived. He was that close to being the 12th martyr among the apostles, and yet he survived. For whatever reason, when the great emperor Domitian saw that he survived, he decided not to sentence him to death in another way, but he sentenced him instead to exile on the land on the island of Patmos, and you can't really see it very well, but you can see it's not very far from Ephesus there, and that's where John was sent. Probably, it took a little bit of time for John's body to heal up, but when it did heal up, he was made to work in the mines along with all the other prisoners. If that's not true, then John would have been the only exception that we would know to the rule. So he almost certainly, if you've ever seen the movies where those guys are with a pickaxe and they're working rocks and working mines, that was John the whole time that he was in exile on Patmos. And while he was there on Patmos, those fierce wolves back in the city of Ephesus decided to, decided to rise up and wreak havoc again. They began to wreak havoc upon the church. They began to take advantage of his absence and try to lead others astray. And it turns out that they did actually succeed in splitting the church to some level. They drew some people away from the gospel and John wrote about this. If you still have your Bibles open to 1 John, if you look at chapter two, verse 19, John mentioned them when he said this. He said, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And we'll talk more about them when we get to that part of John. But for now, I just want you to understand, while he's in exile, the fierce wolves rise up and they begin to cause problems inside the church. Now, John probably felt helpless. He has the heart of a shepherd and he wants to protect the people of God, but he can't. He's in exile. And this is where it becomes very, very good news that Jesus Christ is actually the chief shepherd of every church everywhere in the world. Amen? 
If a, 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 if a physical shepherd cannot be present, the true shepherd is always present. And Jesus himself rose up to take care of his own church. He used people other than John. But then you will remember that he also used John in these days. While John was in exile and the church was suffering, Jesus did an amazing thing and gave John an astounding vision. And he told him to write down that vision, a vision that became the book of Revelation. And he told John to send that to the churches, and John did. And the book of Revelation took a circuitous route, just about like those in the path of those stars. It went from Ephesus to Smyrna and all the way back around. The book of Revelation eventually made it to all the churches. This was, in part, one of the ways that Jesus was caring for his church. He sent John, even from the Isle of Patmos in exile, to rise up as a shepherd and try to chase the wolves away. Sometime after Revelation reached the churches, we actually know the date. In AD 96, John was released from the Isle of Patmos. Emperor Domitian had died. The next emperor, Trajan, decided to release him. And so John went back to Ephesus and he just continued his work as an apostle and as a shepherd of the church of God in Jesus Christ. There in Ephesus, the elders, the leaders of that place persuaded him to write the gospel and he did. And later, for whatever reason, we don't really know, but probably still just to shepherd and protect the church, he also wrote his letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. All of these four writings were designed to advance the gospel and to protect the church from fierce wolves that would rise up. Please take note of that, because that's what these letters are gonna do at this church here too. The purpose of these letters is to help us advance the gospel and to be protected from the fierce wolves that are surely all around us even as we speak. And I trust that God will use these letters to do just that. By the time John wrote the letters, he was at least in his 80s. He may even have been in his 90s. And so he wrote as, a, as an apostle, the last living apostle, and the last living eyewitness to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. For decades, he was the only one left and he was highly sought after, he had great authority, and everything he said came with great credibility, at least to those who believe. But as strong of a position as he had, as great of a man as he was, one of the things that touches me most about John is the humility with which he wrote. And I wanna just say three things about how I see that in his letters. First of all, as we work through the letters, you're gonna notice again that he never identifies himself. He actually never names himself. He did this in the gospel too. He didn't name himself. And I think it's simply because he had the heart that John the Baptist had. I think in John the apostle's heart, he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Earlier in his life, he, he was ambitious. He wanted position. He wanted power. But now in his life, he didn't care about any of that. He just wanted to exalt Christ. So he doesn't even name himself. Now the churches there that received his writings, they didn't need to hear his name in his writings. They knew exactly who was writing to them. But I think for John's part, this is an act of humility. He wants to hide behind Christ and he wants to do nothing really but advocate for Christ. And think about how big of a deal that is. Okay, he's dealing with false teachers who are threatening to tear the church in pieces. He could easily have pulled rank and said, listen to me, I am an apostle. You submit to me, you do as I say, or something like that. But that's not how he approached it at all. 
He just put himself to the side, and you know what he did in his letters? He focused the attention on the person of God, the truth of the gospel, the call to love, and the call to holiness. That's what he did. He just focused his attention on the truth and said, I don't personally matter. It's Jesus that matters. Let's talk about the things that matter. And I find that very instructive. If you're a leader in a church or any kind of ministry at any level, you should take this to heart because you don't need to lead by the force of your position or your personality. You don't need to do that. Just focus attention on the truth. Focus attention on where God's attention is and let God do the things he wants to do. And fathers, you can take this this the same principle into the way you lead your families. You don't have to lead your families by force. You don't have to tell your families, look, God has put me in charge and now you're gonna do what I tell you to do. You don't have to lead as a domineering person. You can put yourself to the side. Focus on Jesus Christ. Focus on the things of the kingdom and lead by the things that are important to him. God will bless you if you do that. Oh, how I love the Apostle John in his humility. I love him. Here's another way we see his humility. When he does decide to throw a title out there, He chooses the title of elder, pastor, rather than the title of apostle. He does this in 2 John 1.1 and 3 John 1.1. Both times he calls himself the elder, which again just means pastor. Now, there was only 12 apostles. It was a very high-ranking place to this very day. There's only 12 people in the whole kingdom of God who have the title of apostle with a capital A. There may be apostles with a small a. We'll talk about that another time. But there are no more apostles with a capital A. There are 12 of those and 12 of those alone. The title of apostle outranks the title of elder, and yet John put his greater title aside and said, I'm an elder. What's he saying? He said at heart, I'm really not interested with title and position and power. I'm a shepherd of God's people. That's what I am. I love God's people. Peter did the same thing, by the way. You remember, these two are competing with each other for power and position, but as they grew older, they both came to just call themselves elders. 1 Peter 5.1, he says to other pastors, he said, I am a fellow pastor along with you. And in this way, Peter was saying that in his heart, his chief identity was just to be a shepherd of the people of God. Now here you have two of the great pillars of the early church just humbling themselves under the hand of God and saying, this is really all about Jesus and we are simply shepherds. I love the humble heart of the, of the Apostle John. I really do. Third thing, third way we see his humility is the great affection that he speaks to the people with. We're gonna see repeatedly as we work through his letters that he calls them his brothers, which could be translated just like the Spanish word hermano, which can be brothers and sisters. The Greek word here can mean brothers and sisters as well. He's speaking to the whole church in very affectionate terms. He calls them multiple times beloved. And I can't wait to talk with you more about what that word means. That is a precious word. And the great apostle John is just looking at his brothers and sisters in Christ and calling them beloved. Twelve times he calls them his children or even his little children. And in this way, he's not trying to talk down to them. He's trying to share affection with them. He's trying to say, I love you. I care about you. 
I'm going to speak to you about truth. I'm going to speak to you about the kind of life you ought to live. I'm going to speak to you about the way the church ought to be in the world. But I speak to you as one who really loves you. Not impressed with himself, very impressed with the gospel, loves being a shepherd of the people, and loves the people. This is John. This is the great apostle. This is the one who's going to walk alongside of us in 2019 and show us the way we ought to go. And boy, am I ever, ever happy about that. Now let me just say a couple words about the, prom- the problems that were in the church of Ephesus and why John wrote his letters. And this will get us back to the text that Buster read for us today in just a couple of minutes. But first of all, let me say to you again that Ephesus, again, was a very eclectic city, which means that the church was also very eclectic. The church in Ephesus was made up of Jewish background believers who were truly believers. It was made up of Gentile background believers who were truly believers. Then mixed in among them were a bunch of people who seemed to be believers but were not. And mixed among them were these wolves who wanted to rise up and frankly take over the church. I see at least four distinct groups. True believers who were Jews. True believers who were Gentiles. People who thought they were believers but were not. And then a fourth group are these wolves who are trying to raise, rise up and cause a lot of problems in the church. About them, with regard to the, 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 the divisive people who were Jews, what they were trying to do was persuade the people that Jesus was only a man and that he was not God. They believed that he was the Messiah, but that there was no virgin birth and that he was not going to live forever. They rejected his atoning sacrifice and they believed that people had to continue to live by the law of God. They were called Ebionites. It's a word that means the poor ones. For some reason, we don't really know why they're named that, named that but they are named that. They claimed to be Christians, but in truth, they rejected the gospel and they were trying to persuade people in the area of Ephesus and around Asia Minor to leave the church. There was on the Gentile side other groups of people. I don't think it was a single group. I think there were other groups of people who were very influenced by Greek philosophy and just Greek culture at large. And you may have heard that in the, in the Greek world, they made a sharp distinction between spiritual things and material things. So it's important that you follow me here. Even if you're falling asleep on me, wake up. This is really important for understanding his letters in the, in the Greek world, they thought that spiritual things were holy, they thought material things were evil. And they thought this so much that for them, the primal God in their mind could not have created the world because a good, holy God would never create evil material. So they believed that God created gods who created gods who rebelled and created all things. And that we're trapped in this material reality and that the whole point of life is to get out of material reality and back to spiritual reality. The only way to move from material reality to spiritual reality is to get the right knowledge. And for them, only a handful of people got the right knowledge. They were called Gnostics, built off the Greek word for knowledge. They had to get the right knowledge and move away from material reality into spiritual reality. For people who believe that and call themselves Christians, they taught that Jesus was a revealer of knowledge and they denied that he was the one who came to atone for our sins. They did not believe we had a sin problem. They believed we had a knowledge problem. 
So they were saying that Jesus came to teach us the right things, not that he came to be the great atoning sacrifice. And in this way, they were leading many astray. They believed that Jesus was just a man and that the spirit called Christ descended upon him at his baptism and left him before his crucifixion. And I think that these people were wreaking havoc in the church and John was having to try to deal with them all. You know, one interesting way to get his perspective on what was happening in Ephesus is to go to Revelation and read the letter that he wrote to them. So why don't you turn with me to Revelation chapter two. The very first of the seven letters to the churches is to Ephesus. Jesus is speaking, but John is writing, and I think this helps us understand the context into which he was writing his letters. John writes there, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write this, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are patiently, you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. It was not all bad news in the church of Ephesus. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which were probably people teaching a Greek form of philosophy. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Whatever the details of the problems facing that church, they were serious. What I want us to understand is that John wrote to these people to woo them toward the Lord and away from the wolves. And I believe that he's going to want to do that among us in this year as well. He wants to woo us toward the glorious God and away from the wolves that are attacking the church from every side. And I praise him because I'm sure that he will do that. At three points, John says why he wrote his letter. So if you'll go back to 1 John, and let's start at verse chapter 1, verse 3. And I just want to read these three purpose statements with you and talk a little bit about why he wrote his letters, and then I will pray and we'll be done for the morning. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. John writes, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, that is, the apostles, I'll argue for that next week, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. The words so that are the key to understanding why John wrote, and in these verses we see that he wrote to fulfill the joy of the people by bringing them into a fullness of fellowship with God who was also in fellowship with the apostles. John wanted them to know the fullness of joy. And I love this, that a man who is writing to a church to deal with error in the church begins with having joy in God. This is what he wants. He wants his people to know the joy of being reconciled to God. He wants his people to know the joy of being in a living, loving relationship with the truth. And this leads us to his second purpose statement in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Beloved, John wrote to remind true believers and to persuade unbelievers that Jesus did in fact come to this earth to make the once for all sacrifice for sin. And without that, there is no fellowship with God. And without fellowship with God, there is no joy in God. The purpose statement in chapter two is extremely important. Our entire life in God, our entire life in Christ is built upon this, that he is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He is the one who reconciles us to God. And John is saying in such a loving, positive way, I will stand for that truth to my death. John is saying that this is absolutely true and it doesn't matter what the wolves are saying, Jesus came to make the sacrifice for sin. This leads to his final purpose statement. Gets back to what Buster read for us. Chapter five, please look with me at verse 13. Chapter five, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. You may remember that John wrote his gospel for this reason. This is John 20, verse 31. He says, I write so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. He wrote his gospel so that people would believe. And he wrote his first letter in particular so that those who do believe would have an absolute, utter, deep assurance that they are in God and that they have eternal life through Jesus Christ. He wants us to know deep in our hearts, beyond a shadow of doubt, that we have eternal life. And do you remember what Jesus said about eternal life? Jesus defined it this way in his prayer to the Father. He said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is the relational knowledge of God. That's what it is, at essence. And this brings us right back to his first purpose statement. In chapter one, verses three through four. Because John wants believers to have the full assurance that they are in fellowship with God so that they will come into the fullness of that fellowship with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and therefore know the fullness of the joy of God. Not just the fullness of earthly joy, but a fullness of heavenly joy, and not only heavenly joy, but God's very joy. John wants us to know that we're in Christ so that we will have joy with Christ. And do you know what happens to believers when they're gripped with the assurance of their faith? Truly gripped in heart with the assurance of their faith? Well, probably many things, but one thing that happens is they pray. And that's why John continues in verses 14 and 15. Look there. He says then, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. John is tying assurance to prayer because that's how it works. If you are assured, not just that you have some insurance plan that's gonna get you out of hell, but if you are assured that you have been reconciled to God in Christ, and you actually have a relationship with your creator, you will talk to him. One of the greatest signs of assurance is not your ability to articulate it. One of the greatest signs of assurance is that you pray. 
that you call upon the name of God. And do you remember what Jesus said about prayer in John 15, seven to 11? He said that if my words abide in you and you abide in me, you can ask whatever you wish and I will do it for you. And when that happens, my Father will be glorified. You will be proved to be my disciples. And then, you know what he said at the end there? He said, I tell you this so that your joy may be complete. The path to joy is having fellowship with God and calling upon the name of God and receiving the grace of God and bearing the fruit of God all as evidence that we in fact belong to God. Beloved, this is why John writes. He wants every single person in this room to know the fullness of joy through fellowship with God. That's what I'm praying happens this year. That this church will literally be set on fire with passion to be in fellowship with God. Whoever believes that Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice for sin in general and theirs in particular has eternal life. And whoever has eternal life has fellowship with God. And whoever has fellowship with God will pray to God. And whoever prays to God will bear fruit for the glory of God. And whoever does that will have the fullness of the joy of God. And so I pray that God will use the ancient words that John wrote for us here to do these things in us in 2019. And let me pray now that God will do that and then we will sing. Our Father, we thank you so much for who you made John to be. I'm so grateful that you met him by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I'm so grateful that you led him through all the days of his life. Lord, I'm grateful that you caused him to survive his persecution under the hand of Domitian because if it wasn't for that, he would not have read, written Revelation he would not have written the gospel. He would have not have written his letters and we would not be talking about them today. I'm so grateful that you sustained him so that he could write and sustain the church. And oh God, how I pray that you would use him to put a solid foundation of truth and fellowship and joy and power under this church in this year. And Father, for what you have already done this morning, for what you will do throughout the rest of this year, we give you our thanks and praise in the mighty and matchless and merciful name of Jesus Christ, amen.